In 1 Peter 4.12, Peter addresses his readers as beloved. Previously, Peter addressed his readers as beloved in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge. The use of beloved with the command urge indicated a new section in Peter's epistle. That section ended in 1 Peter 4.11 with the doxology, quote, To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, Peter enjoins the term beloved with another command here in 1 Peter 4.12. Do not be surprised. Thus, the term beloved here initiates a new division in this epistle. The term beloved, agapetas, is derived from the term agapeo, meaning to sacrificially seek the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. The term beloved views this letter's recipients as the object of this sacrificial love. And here the highest good that Peter can seek for the recipients of his epistle is to give them a prescription for trials. A prescription for trials. And so here in 1 Peter 4, 12-19, Peter prescribes four antidotes for believers to deal with trials. Four antidotes for believers in dealing with trials. We begin with verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, and we begin with antidote 1. Do not be surprised by trials. Antidote 1, do not be surprised by trials. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange things were happening to you. This first antidote prescribed for trials is, again, to not be surprised by trials. The verb be surprised means to think something strange or unordinary. Peter used the same verb in 1 Peter 4.4, 4, referencing the unbeliever's reaction to believers who do not participate in what pagans would regard as customary. So Peter goes all in on the word play in the last phrase of verse 12, when he says, as though some strange thing were happening to you. The term strange refers to something unusual or out of the ordinary. And his point is that while unbelievers think believers' behavior is strange, believers, you and me, should not think our trials are strange or out of the ordinary. Now Peter refers to trials as a fiery ordeal, purosis. A fiery ordeal. The term fiery ordeal, perosis, is a figurative term to describe the pain and agony of trials or sufferings. No doubt, Peter's usage of fiery ordeal is a reference to the manner in which some believers were being put to death. As Cornelius Tacitus wrote of Nero's persecution of believers, quote, they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Now Peter states that these trials have come upon us for our testing. The term testing is used in Scripture to denote either a trial or temptation depending on the agent. When God is the agent, the term is translated as testing. And his purpose is to prove us as believers. If Satan is the agent, 
the term is translated as temptation. And the devil's purpose with the temptation is to cause believers to fall. Now, whether the term testing or parismos should be translated as testing from God or temptation from Satan, the context of 1 Peter must be considered. The law of first mention states that understanding the meaning of a term in a particular text, the first mention of the said term, is the foundation on which all other uses of the term in the context are understood. Peter formerly referred to testing by fire in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Quote, You have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. In that passage, the text is evident that God puts the believers through trials, like gold in the furnace, to prove their faith. Thus, the use of the terms fire and trials in chapter 1 informs us as the interpreters that the same idea is in view in chapter 4. Additionally, in this epistle, Peter's approach is to support all of his exhortations with Old Testament proof text. The recent exhortation, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal for your testing, is based upon several Old Testament passages, namely Psalm 66.10 and Zechariah 13.9. Each of these passages deals with God using trials as the means of testing and purifying His people as gold or silver are tested and purified with fire. Psalm 66.10 states, quote, For you have tried, dakamazo, us, O God, you have refined us as silver is refined. Zechariah 13.9 states, Refine, purao them, as silver is refined, purao, and test, dakamazo, them, as gold is tested. Again, dakamazo. Now, in the Septuagint translations of these passages, the term tried or tested, dakamazo, means to prove, and the term refined, purao, means to set on fire. Interestingly, in 1 Peter 1.7, Peter used the same terms, dakamazo and purao, in the phrase, tested by fire. As well, the Greek term purosis, translated as fiery trial in 1 Peter 4.12, is a cognate of the Greek term purao. By considering the epistle's context and the usage of Old Testament proof text, it can be ascertained here that God has brought these painful trials, even death by flames, into the lives of believers. God's purpose in suffering is to separate true faith from false faith. And while painful trials are overwhelming, we should not assume that God has deserted us. Instead, we should understand that such painful trials are God's means of making us fit for His presence, a common notion in New Testament Paranesis text. Romans 5, 3-5. 
And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. James 1, 2-4 Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So the antidote number one here is that we are not to be surprised by trials. That's antidote one on this prescription for trials. Do not be surprised by trials. Antidote number two is found in verses 13 to 14, and it is to rejoice in the trials. So we're not to be surprised by the trials, rather we're to rejoice in the trials. The second antidote prescribed for trials is to rejoice in them. Peter says in verse 13, but keep on rejoicing. The term but, Allah, presents a contrast. Instead of being shocked, we should keep on rejoicing. And keep on rejoicing means to feel happiness or joy. The present tense of this verb indicates that the joy is to be a continuous attitude in our trials. Rejoicing in trials does not mean that we do not sorrow in our trials. Both sorrowing and rejoicing are possible. 2 Corinthians 6.10 As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Now Peter presents two reasons why we can rejoice or why we can be happy or joyful in the trials. Even though the trials hurt, even though they're sorrowful, we can still be happy and here's why. Number one, we can rejoice in the trials because we are sharing in Christ's suffering. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. We can rejoice in trials because we are sharing in Christ's suffering. The verb share, koinaneo, means to participate in an activity, and it relates to the noun koinonia, meaning fellowship. The sufferings of Christ does not mean that we participate in the same afflictions which Christ suffered. Instead, the phrase refers to the afflictions which we suffer due to our loyalty to Christ. According to P.H. Davids, quote, the idea is that believers are imitating Christ in their suffering. We're sharing in, we're fellowshipping in, we're partaking in his suffering. And Peter knew firsthand what it meant to rejoice in suffering for loyalty to Christ. Acts 5.41 So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now back in verse 13, the phrase, so that, when it says, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation, that phrase is a purpose clause pointing to a future event. 
The future event is the revelation of his glory. And in light of Peter's allusions to the great white throne and the end earlier in chapter 4, the term revelation, apocalypsis, refers to the revealing of Jesus at his second coming. The term glory refers to the Shekinah glory, which first appeared in Scripture as a flaming fire in Genesis 3.24, guarding the eastern gate of the Garden of Eden. At the second coming of Christ, believers will, quote, rejoice with exaltation because Christ will deal out retribution against all those who have caused us to suffer. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Christ used a similar phrase in Matthew 5.12 when he said, Rejoice and be glad when persecuted. Literally, rejoice with exaltation when persecuted. Another way of rendering the phrase rejoice with exaltation is to be overjoyed. And this promise of future joy ought to empower us to rejoice in the present. So when Christ returns at the second coming, we're not talking about the rapture, at the second coming, at the, his return, we are going to be overjoyed because when he returns, he is going to mete out judgment upon all who have caused his children to suffer through various trials. Presently, because we know that's going to happen, even though we're sorrowing in the midst of trials, we can be happy because we know there is going to be retribution from God. So, rejoice in the trials. Why? Because we share in Christ's suffering. And secondly, because suffering is a means of blessing. Verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Verse 14. Again, we can rejoice in trials because suffering is a means of blessing. Peter states, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you are reviled is a first-class conditional statement, which assumes the statement to be true. As such, the if can be translated as sense. It's not a case of if we are reviled, but when we are reviled. And that verb reviled means to be assailed with abusive language. In particular, this reviling occurs for the name of Christ. Here Peter echoes the very words of Christ, Mark 13, 13, You will be hated by all because of my name. My name is an allusion to the ministry of the prophet. Jeremiah 11:21 Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life saying do not prophesy in the name of the Lord so that you will not die at our hand Jeremiah 14:14 14, 14, Then the Lord said to me the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them they are prophesying to you a false vision divination futility and the deception of their own minds 
sharing the word in my name or Christ's name means that the message preached or taught is spoken with divine authority and by divine appointment. When we are assaulted for declaring Christ, we will be blessed by God. And blessed means to possess God's favor. We possess God's favor because the spirit of glory and of God rest on us. Again, 1 Peter 4.14. The translating of this phrase into English is awkward. A straightforward translating of the Greek text would read this. The spirit of glory and the spirit of God rest upon you. By reading the Greek text, we as interpreters discover that Peter here is quoting Isaiah 11.2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The only difference between the two statements is that Isaiah writes in the future tense, whereas Peter writes in the present tense. Isaiah's use of the future tense prophesied that the Holy Spirit would rest upon Christ. Peter uses the present tense to demonstrate that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit rested on Christ at his baptism, Mark 1.10. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Likewise, the Holy Spirit now rests on us at the moment of salvation. It's known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 3.11. As for me, John said, I baptized you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I am, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And so this rest refers to the Holy Spirit's unique ministry whereby he provides supernatural strength and endurance for unusual times. And this ministry began at the moment of salvation. Now the spirit of glory is none other than the Holy Spirit. In fact, the repetition of the definite article before glory and God in the text indicates that it's not two spirits but one spirit. Hence, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory. That the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of glory teaches that He imparts God's glory to us. Glory is often used to describe the character of God. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit is reproducing God-like character in us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, believer, you and I can rejoice in trials because we are partaking in Christ's suffering. And he is going to mete out judgment upon those who cause suffering. As well, we can rejoice because suffering is a means of blessing. So believer, be assured when you're going through a trial, the Holy Spirit will provide strength and endurance to bring you through the trial. And additionally, He is going to use the trial to produce godliness in you. So believer, are you 
rejoicing in trials? Or are they catching you by surprise? Believer, you should not be surprised. We've been through far enough through 1 Peter to know trials are coming. But when they do, here's why we need to rejoice. Because as partakers of Christ's suffering, He's going he's to take out vengeance on those who cause the trials, those who cause the suffering, and because it's a means of blessing. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in you and me through trials. The third antidote prescribed for trials is to examine the reason or purpose for those trials. Examine the purpose for those trials. And such an examination is necessary because not all suffering qualifies as for God's blessing. Verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. 1 Peter 4.15 So under antidote number three, examine the purpose for the trials. Believers should not suffer for wrongdoing. You must examine whether you are suffering due to wrongdoing. Now Peter previously stated that we should not suffer due to sin on our part. Back in chapter 2 and verse 20. Only suffering for Christ's sake will result in blessing. For a third time now, Peter admonishes us not to suffer for wrongdoing, which implies we still struggle with sin. He explicitly provides four examples here of wrongdoing. Believers should not suffer because they are a murderer or thief or evildoer. Murders the unjust taking of an innocent life. A thief unlawfully takes that which does not belong to them. And an evildoer is someone harmful or injurious to society, a criminal. Now these first three examples are crimes against society. And as such, murder, stealing, and evildoing fall under the government's oversight to exact justice and punish the culprit, as we saw in 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14. If a believer suffers for such reasons, listen, you deserve it. If you're suffering because you're an evildoer, you're a criminal, that's on you. If you're suffering because you're a thief, that's on you. If you're suffering because you're a murderer, that's on you. But then he goes on and says we should not suffer as a troublesome meddler. And this term is only used here in the New Testament. And it can be defined as a busybody in other people's affairs. Now see, right away, believer, you heard that list and you said, ha, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a thief, I'm not an evildoer. Okay. But are you a busybody in other people's affairs? J.H. Eliot provides a detailed understanding of this term. He states that a troublesome meddler is someone who is censoring the behaviors of outsiders on the basis of claims to a higher morality. Interfering with family relationships, fomenting domestic discontent and discord, or even tactless attempts at conversion. Hmm. I ask again, are you a troublesome meddler? Are you, are you somebody who's so quick to censure the behaviors of outsiders, of the unregenerate, on the basis of your quote-unquote perceived higher morality? You might just might be a troublesome meddler. 
Are you someone that's constantly interfering in family relationships and coming between members of the family? You could be a troublesome meddler. If you're someone who's constantly stirring up discontent or discord, you're a troublesome meddler. And if you don't know how to talk to someone as you're sharing the gospel, you're a troublesome meddler. You need to learn how to talk to people. Now, Peter's choice of these four evils is interesting. Paul Actemir states that murder would reflect the charge that Christians ate babies and drank human blood in the Eucharist. Thief would reflect the suspicion that the indigent, who were in fact supported by the Christian community, did not need to work because they stole. Evildoer would reflect the suspicion that Christian meetings were so secret because so, they were plotting evil, and busybody would reflect Christians' attempts to control the lives of others, either within the Christian community or outside it through missionary activity. It is for that reason why Cornelius Tacitus stated those people called Christians are infamous for their abominations. Now, accusations are going to be made against us. They may accuse you of murder. It better not be true. They may accuse you of thieving. It better not be true. They can accuse you of being a criminal. It better not be true. And my friends, they may accuse you of being a troublesome meddler. And it best not be true. Examine yourself. As we're examining the purpose for the trials, we should not suffer for wrongdoing. Verse 16, we should not be ashamed of suffering for Christ. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. That is, we need to examine if we are suffering because of our association with Christ. If anyone suffers as a Christian, in verse 16, is a first-class conditional statement that assumes the statement to be true. Here, the if, which can be translated as since, would here be translated as when. Thus, it speaks to when a Christian suffers. Now, it's imperative for us to understand what it means to suffer as a Christian. The term Christian was a term of derision given to believers by unbelievers. The only time the term is used in the New Testament is by unbelievers. Acts 11.26 And when he had fought him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable number, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, not by themselves, but by the other people, the unbelievers. Acts 26, 28, Agrippa replied to Paul, In short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Believers referred to themselves not as Christians, but as disciples, followers of the way, saints, and brethren. Acts 6, 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Acts 24, 14, I admit this to you, that according to the way which they called a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything in accordance with the law and written by the prophets. Romans 1, 7, and 13, to all who are beloved of God in Rome called saints, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. See, it was a common practice of the day to name a group for its leader, such as Herodians. They were followers of Herod the Great. Since Christ was viewed as a criminal, his followers were viewed the same. 
Hence, when Peter says suffer as a Christian, he means that believers were being accused by the courts of being murderers, thieves, evildoers, and troublesome meddlers. When you and I are wrongly accused of such wrongdoing, we should not be ashamed. Now, that word ashamed means to feel disgrace or shame. It's a, pa- it's a present passive imperative and joined with a negative particle, not, meaning that we must stop feeling shame for our association with Jesus. We should not be ashamed when rejected and reviled for being a follower of Christ. And often such shame results in you and me being silent about Christ at best and outright denying him at worst. No doubt Peter had in mind his own shame of Christ, which resulted in his three denials. Instead of feeling shame, believer, you and I ought to glorify God in this name. Glorify, doxazo, is to magnify or honor God. In this name refers to the name Christian. God's name is honored when believers, when we endure slanderous names such as Christian with joy. And remember, as previously stated, it is the will of God that we suffer for what is doing right. 1 Peter 3.17 Therefore, believer, you ought rejoice and glorify God. Again, we need to examine the purpose for the trials. You ought not be suffering because you've done wrong. And you ought not be ashamed if you're suffering for Christ. And you need to remember in verse 17 and 18 that suffering is God's discipline on believers. Verse 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? We need to examine our deeds because God is going to judge all accordingly. We need to examine our deeds because God is going to judge all accordingly. As Peter has explained, God's purpose in suffering is to act as a judgment upon believers, upon us, to purify us. That goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. As well, Peter has established that the end is near and with it a series of judgments. Chapter 4, verse 5 to 7. Now the phrase, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, is another allusion to the Old Testament. The term household of God, to uiku, to theu, translates literally as the house of God. In the Old Testament, the house of God was the temple. 2 Chronicles 4.11 Huram finished doing the work which he performed for King Solomon in the house of God. 2 Chronicles 5.14 The priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. 2 Chronicles 7, 5, the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Now this idea of judgment beginning at the house of God or at the temple is taken from both Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. In Ezekiel 9, Yahweh judges sinners within Israel beginning at the temple. Ezekiel 9, 6. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark. 
and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. According to Malachi 3, when Yahweh comes to his temple, he will first purify his people and then destroy the unregenerate. Malachi 3, 1 to 3 and 5. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now in the Old Testament, the temple was a building in which God's glory dealt. However, when Israel's spiritual adultery began, God divorced them and his glory departed the temple. And when Christ returns to the second coming, he's going to rebuild the temple and the Shekinah glory is going to fill it and Yahweh is going to retake Israel as his bride. But presently, the church, that's you and me, believer, we are functioning as the temple, as the house of God in which God's spirit dwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16 do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As the end draws near, God's judgment is going to begin with the church. As Karen Job states, quote, Those who profess Christ are the first ones to be tested in God's judging action. And it occurs during their lives and throughout history. See, friend, God is using the sufferings of trials as a judgment against us, against the church, to purify us. If it begins with us first, Peter said, another first-class conditional statement, assuming the statement to be true. Therefore, it says literally, since it begins with us, since judgment begins with God's people first, what will be the outcome or result for those who do not obey the gospel? Now, those who do not obey the gospel are unbelievers. The judgment awaiting them is the lake of fire. You see, the difference between the judgment of believers and unbelievers is that one results in purification and the other in judgment. In verse 18, Peter quotes Proverbs 11.31. And if with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? His purpose in quoting this proverb is to support the premise of verse 17. Now what is meant by it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved? Difficulty refers to the sufferings believers face in the present age. The term saved does not refer to redemption, but eschatological salvation. Thus, believers' sufferings, our sufferings, are a precursor, our difficulties, is a precursor to our living hope. That is, the imperishable, undefiled inheritance reserved in heaven. So before we can receive that living hope, we've got to go through some difficulty. 
The second part of this proverb depicts the unbeliever as the godless man and the sinner. Ungodly means without reverence for God. The term sinner refers to one who disobeys God's standard of righteousness, his law. The terms depict unbelievers as having nothing intrinsically good in themselves whereby they could merit favor with God. As to what will become of them, they will stand before the great white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire. The sufferings of believers, our sufferings, friends, are but temporary, whereas the suffering of unbelievers will last for eternity. And so, believers, Peter gives us a prescription for trials. Our first antidote is to not be surprised at trials. Our second antidote is to rejoice in the trials. Our third antidote is to examine the purpose for the trials. And finally, our last antidote, our fourth antidote, is that we must commit ourselves to God during the trial. Verse 19, we must commit ourselves to God during the trials. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The fourth antidote prescribes for trials is to commit ourselves to God during them. Verse 19 begins with therefore, indicating that this is not only the summation of Peter's prescription for trials, but on all that he has written about suffering. Note that he says that believers suffer according to the will of God. Now, this has previously been discussed, but it's crucial to hammer home this truth. Friend, believer, you do not experience trials or sufferings without those trials and sufferings first passing through God's sovereign control. Peter refers to God as a faithful creator. Because God is the creator, he is the sovereign one. Thus, nothing occurs in the created realm over which he does not have control. Faithful means that the God, the Creator, is trustworthy. He will do what He promised. When Israel thought that God had abandoned them, the prophet reminded them in Isaiah 40, 28-29, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. The God who is powerful enough to create the universe is powerful enough to see you and me through our trials and suffering. Because God is the creator is faithful, he will keep his promises. Just a few verses earlier, Peter said that God would judge believers and unbelievers, both the living and the dead. And because he is faithful, he will always vindicate us and condemn the unbeliever. As such believer, you and I must entrust our souls to God, our faithful creator. That verb entrust is a banking term, meaning to deposit or commit something to the protection of another. While experiencing all the sufferings associated with the cross, Peter told us in chapter 2 and verse 23 that Christ, quote, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. By continually entrusting ourselves to the righteous judge, Christ knew that his Father would protect him. And so too, when we entrust or commit ourselves to God, our faithful creator, he will protect us through trials and suffering. Believer, if you cannot entrust your life to God only in the good times, you must entrust your life even in the bad times. And friend, committing yourself to God during trials requires that you continue doing what is right 
Doing what is right implies engaging in that which is morally upright. Though you might suffer unjustly, that is no reason, friend, for you to behave immorally. You must remember that trials and sufferings are God's will for your life. And by engaging in what is morally upright, even in the face of injustice, the world will see that you have entrusted yourself to God, and in turn that may draw them to God himself. 1 Peter 2.20 Friends, Peter has given us a fourfold prescription for trials. Thus, when trials come, and they will, my friends, we should neither be perplexed nor ashamed. The suffering associated with our trials is an opportunity for us to glorify God and witness to a lost world of the work of redemption in our lives. As such, we can rejoice, knowing our trials and sufferings are not without merit. As well, we can rejoice knowing that when we suffer for His sake, we will be counted worthy as suffering in the same manner in which He did. A final word, if I may. As you face trials, it would behoove you to consider these three questions. Number one, is your trial a result of sin? It's an honest question you need to ask. Number two, how can God be glorified in this trial? How can God be glorified in your trial? And number three, how does your trial appear from the perspective of eternity? Father God in heaven, I pray that we might each ask ourselves these questions. Father, even now there are some that are being tried. There are some that are about to be tried. And there are others who have been tried. Lord, I pray whatever trials come into our lives that we might ask these three questions. That, Father, we would be able to say that, no, my trials, my suffering are not the result of sin. If they are, we need to confess and forsake that sin. But if it be the case that they're not, then we need to consider, Father, how we can glorify you through them. Help us to keep our eyes focused where they need to be. Help us to continue to rely on the Holy Spirit. And that, Father, we would seek to learn through these trials, through these sufferings, what you have in store for us. There's no doubt that, Lord, you're using it to purify us, to purge us, so that you can present us as holy and blameless before you in your presence. And so, Father, we need to look at our trials. I pray that you'd help us to see them from the perspective of eternity. My suffering is just but momentary. That's how we have to see them. Because in eternity, as a child of God, we will know nothing of suffering. And we thank and praise you. Father, we pray for those that don't know you as their Lord and Savior. That, Father, they might come to that place of acknowledging and repenting of their sin. That, Father, they might place their faith in the finished work of Christ, dying and shedding his blood, buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And that, Father, as that salvation is a reality in their life, it would be demonstrated by their submission to your Son's Lordship. But Father, while there is still time, while it is still yet day, those unregenerate ones might come to a saving knowledge of your Son. We pray in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.